You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. In today's episode, we talk with Grace Hitchcock about her latest release, His Delightful Lady Delia. Our Pinch of the Past looks at the history of Santa Claus traditions, and our bookworm review features The Mobster's Daughter by Rachel Scott McDaniel. Our guest today is the author of multiple historical novels and novellas. She holds a master's in creative writing and a bachelor's of arts in English with a minor in history. Grace Hitchcock lives in Baton Rouge with her husband, son, and daughter. Grace, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. It is so much fun to have you on the show at last. And as we are drawing close to Christmas time, we are wondering, are you a turkey or ham person during the holidays? I'm a honey-baked ham person. Ooh, she's specific here. Honey-baked ham. (laughs) Hard to beat that, I gotta admit. Oh, yeah. I remember my mom used to make ham and she would take pieces, let's see, I think they were pineapple rounds and she would cover the ham with them and she would use whole cloves to pin them onto the ham and then she would bake it like that. It was so good. Oh, sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was so funny when I was growing up, apparently on my mom's side of the family, Some people really preferred ham, but apparently there were enough people that really wanted a Christmas turkey. So when mom's family got together, we always had both. Uh (laughs) So growing up, was there someone in your life that really inspired you as a person or as a writer? There's a few, but I have to say it's probably the same with a lot of authors, but Jeanette Oak, her works were very inspiring. As a child, I started reading them at the age of 12. And I remember reading A Gown of Spanish Lace, and it had such a plot twist that it just blew my mind. (laughs) And I just, it stuck with me for 20 years, just, you know, that one story. And I keep going back to her works and rereading my favorites. And then Tracy Peterson is another one of my favorites. She wrote this series called Westward Chronicles, and it was about the Harvey girls. And it, I really fell in love with the Fred Harvey girls who were these waitresses who would work off the railroads and serve high-end food in fine, on fine china and these beautiful restaurants. And so I just fell in love with their story because of Tracy Peterson's works. And then I just branched out to read every Harvey girl story I could after that. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. I feel like that was... I feel like the Harvey girls are having the comeback in Christian fiction these days, which is super cool, but it's neat to hear that it's not their first time Mm -hmm. around. Yeah, I believe Kimberly Woodhouse just wrote one, a series, and I read the first book. It was so good. I can't wait to read the next two. Oh, nice. Kimberly Woodhouse is really good from what I hear. I haven't actually had a chance to read one of hers yet, but I hear really good things. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Well, starting with more of the Western genre, what era have you discovered is your favorite to write personally? For America, it's definitely the Gilded Age. I feel like there's just a lot of fodder there for writing because there's so many new inventions being created and there's so many jobs opening up for women. And, and with those jobs, there's a lot more, I feel like, that the woman can do outside of the home that could lead for fun 
writing. Yeah. And then also for England, I would say Regency. I just started branching off to the Regency side of things and really exciting to dive into that. Oh, yes. I love Regency. My name is Darcy, so it was faded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that, that is another really cool era because it feels very unique to a lot of, it's just its own little bubble. And so it's pretty cool to, to read about and research. Yeah. And there's just so many great resources on it. I'm just really enjoying like learning so much about the Regency era outside of just, I normally read like the, or watch the Jane Austen films, but it's fun to yeah, it's fun to read the history behind those stories. Yes, it is. It is. And I love the Gilded Age, too, because like you said, there was just so much going on. There's political upheaval and there's just so much changing oh, yeah. in the world that you've always got plenty of conflict available. Just pick what you want to write about. Yeah, I think the Gilded Age reminds me of, in a way, our day and age with the change in technology where like, even when I was a kid, like my parents didn't have a cell phone. And now like we do everything on our cell phones. And it's fun to think about characters and people who lived in the Gilded Age and like their grandparents and how their grandparents would be like my grandparents today. Oh, well, in my day and age and like how true things were so different. Like when the Gilded Age took off and you had so many inventions and women were being introduced into the workforce, there's really a big change in society at that point in time. For sure. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. So is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Yeah, a lot of times I only post the highlights of writing on social media. But when I wrote His Delightful Lady Daily, it was definitely during one of the hardest years of my life. I There was a death in the family and I got some really hard news. And then I had a really heartbreaking miscarriage. So I dedicated His Delightful Lady Dahlia to my little angel baby. And I gave Dahlia the nickname of Leah, which is what I we named our baby. But it's a sweet way to remember her by the dedication and the name. And so since then, God has really brought us through a healing period and blessed us with a handsome little boy. And he's about two months old now and sweet and happy as can be. Oh, congratulations on your rainbow baby. Thank you. Thank you. He's definitely a huge blessing. There's something about you've got this book as a tangible reminder of the fact that what you're going through was so hard and but God was still giving you the story. And I, I don't know, that's really special. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was definitely hard, but I'm glad that every time I can look at the book, I think about her. Yes, that is so sweet. Well, let's dive right into talking about the story, His Delightful Lady Delia. Delia Vittoria's mother has lost her voice at last. After five years of being her diva mother's understudy, it is time for Delia to assume her place as the lead soprano on stage behind the Academy of Music's faded velvet curtain. And she is all that stands between the Academy and its greatest threat, the Nouveau Riche's lavish new Metropolitan Opera House. Kit Quincy never misses opening night, but when his sister begs him to help get her husband out of an Italian opera star's arms, Kit confronts the wrong Lady Vittoria. When he happens upon the stunning young diva again at Mrs. Astor's dinner party the following night, he attempts to make amends, and is instead pulled into a plot to win the Great Opera War. To draw attention to Delia Vittoria as the new soprano star, Kit is convinced to act as both 
Aphidelia's patron and the enigmatic phantom who once haunted the Academy years ago. But when a second phantom appears, more than Delia's rising career is threatened. So a haunted theater, opera wars, and a mysterious phantom. This book sounds like it is just rich in drama and secrets and intrigue. And so I'm always wondering, especially with historicals, were there any deleted scenes I actually, I used to have like folders full of deleted scenes in my earlier novels, but now I have been following my synopsis plot pretty closely. So I still leave room for creative, creative spots where my characters can talk to me and I write down what they want me to say, <laughs> but I don't really, I don't really have too many deleted scenes now, but yeah, I guess that's just. Oh, nothing juicy to share with us. Oh, well, oh, well. <laughs> This, when you're talking about this character being brought into play to be a phantom, and then he's getting there, and suddenly he discovers that he has competition for this role, I'm really loving that because there's a certain element of humor to it, but also. If two people have the idea to put this phantom up, there's something pretty shady going on. So, do you find it comes to you easily to write these intrigue, spy feels, or is it something that you have to work out to get all the details straight? I normally get like just a, a bit of an idea in the beginning. It does take some happening to figure out the mystery behind it. Honestly, the Phantom changed like three different times <laughs> by the time I finished the novel. I guess originally I didn't even know who the second Phantom was until I reached the end. So I'd say it's a little hard for me to get there, but... I hope I get there eventually. <laughs> oh, that's going to be fun, though, if the Phantom was fooling even the author for a little while. You know it's going to be good, right? I hope so. <laughs> what was it about New York during the Gilded Age that first captured your imagination, do you think? I think it's just, it was a great time of change for women. And while there was, they could still have that epic romance feel with the balls and the dancing and the courtships with the sweet romance. I feel like women were really breaking new grounds in the workplace and making history and then, so I just think it's an all-around exciting era to research, read, and write. Oh, that's cool. You feel like the early 1900s may be focused on more as when women were working as secretaries and even more during World War II and stuff like that. I think it gets glossed over that those opportunities really started opening up as early as the 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. What would you say is one lesson you've learned while writing this particular story? For this one, I'd say my biggest lesson was really learning how to take a deep dive into my hero's character to convince the heroine of his true love for her. Normally, I do try my best to go as deep as I can with each character. But for this particular book, Dahlia had or has a lack of trust for men just based on what her childhood was with her father abandoning her. And not to go to spoil the book too much, but she just has a distrust of men. So I need to make sure I found a way that she would fall in love with Kit that was believable, just not based on looks or just the basics of his character, but really go deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because for her, that wouldn't have cut it for her. She would have been too cautious to it. So you had to really know what is it about this man that's going to show her he's safe. Right. And for him, I just really wanted him to be that picture of God's perfect love for, for her because she didn't have that example in her life. So I wanted Kit to be the example. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's cool how God invites us into his work when we get to show people his love. That's cool. 
Yeah. And what about Delia, do you think will resonate most with your readers? For Delia, I just hope that they find her a very charming person and sweet and someone who comes from a hopeless situation and is given hope and sees true love for the first time through Kit as a reflection of God's love for her. Yeah. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have to ask, we're talking about opera and we're talking about phantoms. Any nods to the phantom of the opera in this story? Oh, yes. My first <laughs> my first Broadway that I ever went to, I was six years old, and it was the Phantom of the Opera in New Orleans. And I just remember just jaw dropped pretty much the whole performance. <laughs> and I I just fell in love with it when from that young age. So I've been watching and listening to the Phantom of the Opera for years. And when I finally was doing research and I discovered the great opera house wars, there's the what if sequence begin. I knew I just had to write my own version of the fan of the opera story. Oh, that is awesome. That is so cool. I have not actually seen a performance of it. Now you've got me intrigued. I need to move that up on my to-do list because this just sounds cool. It's pretty, pretty epic <laughs> to go to see the Broadway play. So I've always loved Broadway. Oh, yes. So many wonderful stories came come out of there. And Grace, what is next for you? What is next in, in your future for writing? Well, this spring I signed with Kriegel for my first ever Regency series. So I am writing a book set in England and it follow, follows the story of a baker turned heiress. And then book two will follow her friend who is a secret mystery romance writer and then the third book will follow an heiress with a mysterious past. And I'm finishing it up actually this week. I'm going to send it off to my publisher. And then while I wait for that book to release, I'm going to get to work on my second book that I started for my indie line on the Harvey Girls. And that will release in May. And that's what I have lined up. Very cool. Lots of irons in the mm -hmm. fire. You're a busy lady. <laughs> Well, I really enjoy writing and it's hard for me to take a break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, Grace has been so kind to offer a copy of his delightful Lady Dahlia. To enter to win, just check out our giveaway page at historicalbookworm.com. You can also find a link for the giveaway in the show notes of this episode. And Grace, where can our listeners learn more about you? You can find out more about me at gracehitchcock.com. I have a blog there where I post. I'm a reader, so I post a lot of my book reviews of current reads there. And then I'm also on Instagram at gracehitchcockbooks. So if you'd like to see, I do more book reviews there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Now for a pinch of the past. From a legendary Christian bishop to an elf driving flying reindeer across the sky, St. Nicholas has certainly come a long way. Today we're taking a look at some of the stops along this wild journey to international fame. Oh, I'm so excited to hear this one. I actually really enjoy learning the different kind of legends of Santa Claus. So this should be fun. It was really fun researching. I ran across some stuff I had no idea about. So. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Little is known about the actual man who became the Catholic St. Nicholas. He was the Bishop of Myra in what is now Turkey. 
And at the Council of Nicaea, he famously lost his temper and slapped another bishop in the face for arguing that Christ was not equal with God. Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, he, of course he did repent of this behavior, but it just made him so angry to hear that teaching that is not correct. That, yeah, that, that's the kind of man he was. But most details about his life are fuzzy. Just it's been so long. Legend has it that St. Nicholas was a generous man giving all of his inheritance to the poor. One story tells of a poor man who was on the verge of selling his three daughters into slavery as he could not provide dowries for them to marry. St. Nicholas, using a window to preserve his anonymity, tossed bags of gold into the house at night. Supposedly, they landed in the girl's stockings or shoes, which were drying before the fire. Hmm. Starting to make a connection here, right? Yes. Actually, I'm pretty sure I remember that from Veggie Tales, St. Nicholas. Yes, yes. It's, <laughs> it, it's the story of his generosity that, that has survived. He did much more, but this one stuck. So in Germany, St. Nicholas Day is December 6th, the anniversary of St. Nicholas's death. St. Nicholas Day is December 6th, which is the anniversary of St. Nicholas's death. And in medieval Germany, that was the only day near Christmas time when gifts were exchanged. St. Nicholas supposedly came bringing gifts for good children who left their shoes by the door or window the night of December 5th and woke to find them filled with goodies. But in these legends, St. Nicholas was often accompanied by a darker, monstrous creature known by many names, one of them being the Krampus. And I chose that name because I can't really pronounce the others, and I may be mispronouncing this one. But anyway, the horned Krampus went so far as to whip naughty children with switches. Oh! Yes, he was like a beastly looking creature, and yeah, that, he was supposed oh. to punish the naughty children. In Alpine regions, the Krampus has been toned down, but is still part of the traditional Christmas festivities today. Oh, wow. No, I remember that now. Ugh. I know, it's this darker side that I'm not unhappy that he did not survive <laughs> in popular myth. Now, in the Netherlands, St. Nicholas was known as Sinterklaas. Impersonators dressed up in red bishop's costumes and small markets sprang up around St. Nicholas Day, specifically to sell small toys and treats to fill children's shoes. During the Reformation, the celebration of Catholic saints became unpopular, and so the angelic Christ child, or Das Christkindl in German, was promoted as the bringer of gifts to children. Rather than a saint, mm. we're going to do Jesus himself. And they say that the word Christkindl eventually anglicized into Chris Kringle. That's neat. I never knew that. I didn't either. I found that very fascinating how all these little pieces came together. In England, the character of Father Christmas dates back to the 1400s. However, he wasn't really representative of a particular person, but more an embodiment of Christmas spirit, Christmas festivities. He gave no gifts, but supposedly presided over Christmas celebrations, delighting in the special food and drink and merriment. He might be known as Lord of Christmas or Prince Christmas, and he often condoned rowdy celebration. Oh my. Yes. How interesting. It's funny how there are like, how do I say this? Positive and negative traditions to go with almost with probably all of our holidays. There really are. It's some stuff you're like, oh, that's really cute and that's really fun. And then some stuff you look at it and you're like, mm, I believe I'll just let that one stay in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was in 1616 that Father Christmas was presented in a play as actual, like a grandfatherly figure. He brought children with him named things like Carol, 
And one of them was named Miss Rule, which is kind of your rowdy, mischievous person at the mm-hmm. celebration. But scholars say that the ghost of Christmas present who visited Scrooge was actually a close likeness to the Father Christmas of Charles Dickens's time. Very neat. We're studying Charles Dickens at school or and reading through it. I am with the second graders. And so that's been a lot of fun. But I could definitely see the resemblance between those two characters. Absolutely. It's and it's cool to think that that it would have been recognizable to the people at the time as, oh, this character, this second ghost was actually kind of someone that they knew. Mm-hmm. A familiar face. Exactly. Now, it was in America where the modern Santa Claus emerged. In 1809, Dutch families still told tales of St. Nicholas on December 6th. Supposedly, according to one chronicler who may or may not have been exaggerating, St. Nicholas flew over the city in a wagon and climbed down chimneys to deliver gifts. Hmm, I like how the legend kind of unfolds over the years. Exactly, it keeps growing. In 1821, an anonymous poem entitled Old Santa Claus with Great Delight gave Santa his red coat and reindeer and moved his visit from December 5th to Christmas Eve. I wonder why they, why they moved that. Yeah, I guess they wanted to bring it into a more universal celebration since Christmas was celebrated across denominations and across Mm -hmm. countries, whereas St. Nicholas Day was still relegated to usually more Catholic celebrations and different regions. Mm -hmm. Cool. In 1823, Clement Clark Moore brought us the poem now known as The Night Before Christmas, and this was where Santa got most of the features we know him for today including his sleigh with a whole herd of reindeer, his jolly smile, his red coat and black boots. This was where Santa, as we know him, kind of came to life. And his belly that jiggled like jelly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He, he became um, a nice, jolly, stout fellow. Mm-hmm. In the 1880s, Victorian England was ready for a more family-oriented Christmas celebration and the American Santa Claus stepped right up to merge with Father Christmas into a benevolent, red-coated grandfather bringing gifts for the At least some folklorist at the time wondered where in the world this tradition of hanging up stockings had popped up from. But they're like, it's just common knowledge that you hang up your stocking on Christmas Eve, and we're not sure where this came from. Apparently, <laughs> it's the Americans, you know, invading again, you know. <laughs> you know those Americans. <laughs> <sighs> But it was during the World Wars when American soldiers brought the gift-giving Santa Claus across Europe and even to Japan. Dressed in Santa costumes, they gave gifts to local children in the war-torn countries at Christmas time, forever imprinting the jolly old elf on the hearts of people who had never heard of him. Perhaps the only thing that has lasted from the real St. Nicholas to the Santa Claus of today is his generosity in giving to those in need. And that, my friends, is truly at the heart of what God did on Christmas Day. Time for our bookworm review. The Mobster's Daughter by Rachel Scott McDaniel. The one man who could help her must never know her name. If Kate Chamberlain can't reveal her true identity to the world, she must settle for sharing only her talent. Hired as a musician for KDKA Radio, Kate plays everything from sponsors' jingles to complex sonatas. As long as the whispers around the broadcasting room refer to her as Killjoy Kate and not Katerina the Crime Boss's daughter, then her life is safe from danger. Or so she thinks. When anonymous violent threats surface, Kate's wary of accepting protection from the handsome private investigator, Detective Jennings. His save-the-world attitude is as charming as his manners, but no one, especially him, can know the gruesome realities of her birth. 
1924 Pittsburgh underworld is as complicated as it is elusive, and though the dealings of the Salvestanos have dwindled, Rat Jennings is certain the man responsible for his father's death is still at large. But his personal hunt for justice must be set aside when his day job requires him to investigate threats directed at a young radio broadcaster with enamoring brown eyes and secretive behavior. When danger surrounds them, will the truth of Kate's past become the key to their survival? Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. The Mobster's Daughter distills the atmospheric haze of a noir film, the heel-kicking excitement of the jazz age, and the romantic tension of an almost kiss into a concoction as intoxicating as moonshine. Rachel Scott McDaniel sweeps the imagination off its feet with evocative prose and drops it in the roaring 20s wearing a new pair of T-strap shoes. The plot is fast-paced and the characters multifaceted. I was moved by Katerina's battle with panic attacks, and I loved the way music was used to develop her relationship with Rhett. With this riveting story of redemption, McDaniel has solidified her place on my autobuy authors list. If you're in the mood for a page-turning historical romance, speak easy at the nearest bookstore and get your copy of The Mobster's Daughter. So how are you doing, Darcy? I am doing well. I love the Christmas season. It's my favorite time of year. And if I were to go deep, I would say that some years it's been difficult for me because when it's been a harder year, it can be more difficult to just lean into that joy that I'm used to experiencing so much at Christmas time. But I'm also learning to discover that the quiet peace of just remembering what Christmas is also enough. So I, I just, I love everything about the season so much. It's If you are in a happy place, it has everything to offer you. And if you are in a sorrowful place, it still has everything to offer you because Jesus came. But I love the way my town celebrates Christmas. St. Augustine has lights all over the downtown. The trolleys do special rides at night to view the lights, or you can just walk. My favorite thing to do is to sail on the Schooner Freedom and see the lights from the Intracoastal Waterway. It's just beautiful to be out there. And they serve hot chocolate, so it's really my vibe. I'm just excited to be celebrating the entire Christmas season down here in St. Augustine this year. Oh, that sounds so fun. I wish I could go with you, especially on the trolley rides. Yes, yes. I'll have to drag you down here some year in December to to see our lights. But what's going on with you guys? Well, I am preparing... Oh dear, for the second graders to do some caroling. We had the idea to, we're trying to find ways to really serve the community. And I'm trying to help the kids actually do things and give things this holiday season because there's such a massive focus on gift giving. And I really believe children are vulnerable to falling into this sort of trap of uh, of emotional fulfillment through material objects. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I was doing prayer time with my second graders and I had kids and they just kept praying about, oh, the, what they wanted for Christmas and the Nerf guns and the Barbies. And my heart was really grieved. And I was like, how do we interact this And so we've come up with different ways to serve people in our school. And 
So for Christmas, the second graders are going to do some caroling. And then the high school band director got news of it. And he was like, hey, the band can come and play music for you. And so then I reserved one of the parks of the city will be in the gazebo. And then my church has a coffee ministry where they have a coffee truck. They go around the town giving out free coffee. And I was like, hey, can you guys stop by when we're there? And it all has just kind of fallen into just the pieces that have come together so beautifully. Now we're just praying for the weather. (laughs) It will be nice and that our community will be blessed. So that's what I'm working on at present. That's exciting. And like you say, that's important to give kids the opportunity to serve even a small way like that. Because yes, at Christmas time, seeing someone out caroling, even if you don't have time to stop and listen, it's going to bring a smile to your face and lighten your heart a little bit just to hear them singing as you walk by. So I'm excited that you're doing that. Yes, I hope your second graders enjoy it and learn to see some joy in something other than gifts. Me too. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.